Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Donnie Hill. Donnie is a communication and leadership coach, as well as an impact-oriented business strategist. He currently runs the Life Maximizer Consultancy and sources his lessons from his eclectic background, ranging from personal training to stage acting. It's clear that many traditional leadership and communication techniques aren't taking us down the roads we really need to be walking together. Often, influence techniques seem manipulative and morally gray or even dark side. Donnie points us down a new route, one inspired quite a bit more by the light side of the force. To this end, we'll be talking about topics like restorative leadership, holding compassionate conversations with people you strongly disagree with, and how to invite people in, even during a negotiation. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Donnie Hill. Today I'm here with Donnie Hill. Welcome, Donnie. How are you doing today? I am doing really, really well, Gavin. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so um, Donnie and I met because uh, I actually took a, uh, a communication slash leadership course from Donnie. Uh, did some coach. He did some coaching with me, uh, maybe about uh, six months or a year ago. And uh, it's it's funny as we'll talk through here. You might see some uh, some of Donnie's. Uh, influences on the podcast because he definitely <laughs> shared a bunch of things that were very helpful for me. Um, but uh, before I kind of go into to more about what I respect about Donnie's uh, coaching, uh, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about kind of how you got involved in uh, like leadership and communication coaching. Yeah, it's it's a really uh, fascinating story <laughs> because I, when I was 19, I was diagnosed with a neurological voice disorder. Oh, wow. So at the time, I couldn't talk at all. And there was a period about five months where one of my old teammates, I was living with him at the time, and he would essentially be my voice. So he would order for me. He would wow. converse with me. Like I would have to whisper to him or point to things. And that was part of the reason um, for how I got connected with Fonta at Eloquence. She was actually one of the the voice teachers that I worked with um, as I was navigating navigating spasmodic dysphonia. So, That's amazing. I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So fast forward maybe to 2017 or 2018, I was working in a tech company and I had always wanted to go out and, and do my own consulting. And I had done some leadership development work and communication work previously. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said, I, I have a lot of clients who are on a waiting list. Would you be <laughs> open to coming on and being one of my teachers? Uh, I'll train you. And then you can use this as a way to transition out of Juniper and into your own thing. So mm -hmm. I say, yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. And here we are three years later, and I'm, I'm still doing some work with Eloquence. But most of my focus now is on uh, influence and positive leadership. That's awesome. Well, as I'll, um, you know, I'll say the thing that, that struck me the most about your work is, um, uh, and I hope you forgive me because I make this joke fairly often <laughs> with Donnie, but uh, so I often look at uh, kind of, you know, leadership te techniques or communication techniques or charisma techniques or these sorts of techniques with where there's kind of like 
There's like dark side techniques, which are like kind of manipulative. And then there's like gray side techniques, which are like you can kind of use them for good or for ill, you know. Uh, and then there's like light side techniques, like telling the truth or different things that that are like are good techniques, but they, they tend to just like more be kind of like light side techniques that like, you know, are generally good uh, and like are hard to use for ill. And the thing that I loved about Donnie was that every time I would show up, it just felt like it was light side technique after light side technique <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> and so I, I continuously refer to him as a Jedi uh, because I pretty firmly believe this. And uh, if you see his uh, his portrait that we'll put up on the uh, show notes, uh, he, he definitely has that. <laughs> Jedi appearance. So I just appreciate you proving this to me, Donnie, that like that you can move through life kind of with this more compassionate attitude. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that actively takes work. And I think for me, and my, my way of teaching, it's like, I, I don't want you to be an asshole, but I also don't want you to be a doormat. Yes. <laughs> and and yes. so there's, there's this fine line of how do you, how do you speak your truth, yeah. but in a compassionate way, that also sets a boundary. And it, it just has a whole, a whole lot of elements to Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why this matters so much and why, you know, we wanted to have you on the podcast was that (laughs) these sort of uh, non-compassionate ways of communicating (laughs) and these sort of adversarial ways of communicating seem to be causing a lot of issues in our society. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure you've probably seen it or you agree, but you know, you just look at these, all these places and I'm struck like, you know, especially like companies in Silicon Valley, and this isn't, you know, across the board true, but I've seen a lot of places where I'm very happy that people are sort of having more cooperative interactions where they're looking to sort of like reach out to people would otherwise be competitors and sort of have lunch with them or figure out how they can work together. Um, versus I could see ways where people could just do, you know, co-op or, uh, competitive interactions and want to crush the competition. And, um, you know, it feels like there's two routes on a lot of these uh, interactions, right? And it matters a lot whether we take the one where we're trying to uh, invite people in who might be across the aisle from us or at a different company uh, versus trying to uh, to beat them <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> do something else there. So um, I just think those are, you know, it's important to kind of map out the stakes here that this stuff does really matter. And it, I think in some ways, by having conversations with your competitors or people that you differ from, you actually ex- you expand your thinking, but also you you gain uh, more depth in your own personal perspective because now you're considering it from many different points of view. It's not just mm-hmm. it's just not, it's not just one um, a narrow scope. So I think having people who are culturally different than you, who are politically different than you, who are, are different in their neurodivergence or Mm. ways of living. I think all of it can contribute to not only making you a more compassionate human being, but also a more intelligent human being. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're totally right. Um, I'm curious and maybe we can start with, um, what is that? And, and I, I've, I'm curious to just hear your thoughts here on, you know, oftentimes there is, maybe we can start with that political angle, right? If you're sitting down yeah. at the uh, Thanksgiving dinner table or you're, you're otherwise engaging with somebody who maybe you, you care about what they feel or think, or you, you want to sort of uh, either work with this person or cooperate with this person, but you don't know if you agree with them. <laughs> maybe they're saying things that 
um, like almost offend you? I, like, how would you recommend people go about those kinds of conversations? Yeah. Uh, one, make sure you're in your body. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Like, you know, I could, like, I've learned a little bit what that means to me, but. Yeah. yeah. So when I, when I hear things that trigger me, I automatically go, I automatically go into my, my fight or flight response, yeah. right? It's just part of the nervous system. It's part of our survival. It, that means it's working really well. But if we don't bring ourselves back down, then we're still in the conversation in a place of agitation, which mm-hmm. makes it really, really difficult to listen to other people that you don't agree with. Yeah. And so some and people of the, can sense that from you too, right? For sure. For yeah. sure. And I think one of the, the practices that's really helpful is sometimes just naming Oh wow, that didn't that didn't sit well with me, or I wasn't expecting that, or I I got triggered a little bit. And even just that little acknowledgement can go a long way. Because now you're like, okay, now I can be more present in the conversation. But that also might be your cue to say, I'm too triggered right now. I can't mm-hmm. I can't continue this conversation with you. Or can we come back to this at a, at another time? Yeah. And totally. Sometimes you you don't have that luxury of, of pushing pause, but I think uh, if you're going to have a conversation with someone that you have disagreement with, that mm-hmm. is one really really important factor to to consider. I think the other factor to consider is that of curiosity. Yeah, and it, it's really this. Hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Tell me more. Yeah. And this is where the invitation into the conversation um, begins, right? Because now you're saying, I could choose to jump out of the conversation with you because I disagree with you, but I actually want to stay in the conversation with you and I want to learn a little bit more. Um, can you tell me why you think this way? Or can you tell me what this means for you? Or can you tell me what about this way of thinking or this party or this candidate or whomever, what do you resonate with? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you, you get more understanding of the, the thinking underneath the comment. Yes. Well, I find that this is interesting, right? Because you can look at it both from like a compassion lens and also from like a pragmatic lens, right? Like it's much easier to uh, help somebody update their beliefs correctly if you understand what their current beliefs are well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And doing that sort of steel manning action where you're trying to (laughs) (laughs) figure out what's the most... uh, uh, what's the most uh, uh, intelligent and persuasive thing that could be meaning, right? Because I might be interpreting it differently or I might be, yeah. Um, yeah, I found that to be useful. I, you know, it's, it's funny. I remember there was a time where I was, um, uh, I was on a plane flight and I was coming back from Iowa and there was a guy that sat next to me who I started talking with and it became pretty apparent about halfway through the conversation that he held some pretty racist beliefs. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, it was one of these things where I kind of had to decide whether I was just going to start calling him out for it or if I was just going to express some curiosity and try to learn why. And <laughs> I decided to do the latter for a little bit. And it feels weird, right? Because it feels almost like you're giving somebody a pass as they're talking about it. And clearly yeah. the woman behind me was getting upset. <laughs> but like, I don't know. It was an interesting lesson. And just like, I feel like I 
while I still disagree with him and, you know, condemn a lot of the beliefs that he has, I, I feel like I understand where, why he believed his stuff more, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's where the compassion piece comes in because compassion for me doesn't mean agreement Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it, it doesn't mean um, that you don't hold people accountable, but it does mean that you bring some level of curiosity to the conversation because you're you're just saying, all right, this person is a human being. If nothing else, we have that in common. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if if I want someone to extend that to me, then I also have to practice extending it to other people. And when there's people that we agree with, that's easy. But when it's people that we disagree with, that's the difficult part. But that is where the practice actually t- um, takes place. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know, you know, you've got kind of like the tip for just paying attention to, you know, staying in your body, staying grounded. Is there other just kind of like, uh, I don't know, phrases or conversation patterns that you feel like work well there? <laughs> like, tell me more. I feel like that's a good one, right? Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, help me understand. Help me understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I hear how you feel or I don't know. There's some things that are kind of like... Um, acknowledging you know what people are feeling or yeah i think the the biggest thing that you can do is find the connection point and -hmm. sometimes the connection point is this person has a point of view Mm -hmm. and it's super general but if you can use that as an anchor point to get into the conversation um then you're more likely to walk away learning something, not only about that person, but also likely to to learn something about yourself. So I can give you I can give you a really perfect example that just happened. Please, uh, yeah. a, a few weeks ago, I was in Kansas City visiting my cousin uh, and celebrating his fiftieth birthday, mm-hmm. and one of his frat brothers made some homophobic comments. Mm. So I was sitting with my cousin and and my dad, uh, and my cousin was asking me if I, I wanted to leave. And I said, no, I actually want to listen and see what's going to happen in this conversation. Mm. <laughs> and I could feel myself amping up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in there like trying to stay in my body, but also trying yeah. to figure out, all right, how, how do I go into this conversation? Or do I want to go into this conversation right now? Sure. So I didn't say anything at that moment. Uh, but then the next day, my cousin called me and he asked me what happened because he was <laughs> he was feeling a little good. So he didn't he didn't remember all the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I told him and my cousin said, well, do you actually want me to say something to him? And I said, it's your party. I you know, I don't know. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And so he said, no, I, I want you to tell me whether or not you want me to say something. So I told him, yeah, I'd love for you to say something. Yeah. And. So my cousin talked to his frat brother, and then later that evening, his, uh, his frat brother called me aside to have a conversation, and he mm. apologized. Mm. And I realized in that moment, it wasn't that I wanted him to, uh, to see me, to agree, to do anything. It was that this is about respect. Mm. I'm not going and disrespecting you, your girlfriend, your life together, et cetera. And I don't want you yeah. doing that to me. Yeah. And so he said, I get it. And I'm sorry. So I'm it, glad to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, 
it was such it was such a beautiful conversation, but it was one of the most uncomfortable conversations that I've had. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine that's that's wild. Um, was there something that you felt like? Yeah, I'm curious, like if there was uh, takeaways from you on that, or things that you felt like helped him see. Was it just one of these things where he was doing it absentmindedly, or was it something where he had to update on something? Or yeah, it was something that he was doing. Absent-mindedly, but it, it was because he came across a little Lil Nas X video, one like his newest videos. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like, it's in your face and you feel uncomfortable and, you know, you don't want to see it. Fine, whatever. Um, but it that doesn't mean that you get to continue being disrespectful. Yeah. Because guess what? You have people from from all walks of life on this yep. earth. And so we have to figure out how to coexist, but sometimes coexisting means speaking up for yourself and advocating for yourself. Sometimes yep. it means setting a boundary and telling people, Hey, that's not okay. Um, sometimes it means talking to allies who can advocate for you. So it, it can show up in all different types of ways, but this is, uh, this is part of the, the journey for me around restorative communication or compassionate communication and restorative leadership. Uh, it's hard because it's uncomfortable, but there's so much that you get back when you actually do it. Yeah. I feel that. <laughs> That's awesome. What can you tell me a little bit about, cause I know you've been um, thinking a lot about this sort of concept of uh, restorative leadership recently. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what that means and sort of where, where your thoughts have been? Yeah. I, I'm i tired of watching people run themselves into the ground. Mm. Uh, part of it has been because of my own journey with, uh, with burnout and, and depression. And the other part has been because of the work that I used to do working with cancer patients and their families. And so I know the, the really ugly side of not having your physical and mental health. Yeah. Oh man. And as I as I watch entrepreneurs and business owners and corporate leaders now, there for a lot of them, so many are still in in what I think of as a fight flight. <laughs> They're just getting through because they just need to get through. And I think we need to find another way to to lead and another way to build businesses and another way to um, to help our communities that don't require us to overextend ourselves and overgive and overcommit and burn ourselves out. And so in addition to um, in addition to the pandemic, you also see the the numbers of chronic illnesses going up. Yep. And it's like, all right, what what has to happen in order for people to say enough? And I realize probably in February or March of this year, I'm like, I can't continue living life as is. Like, this just doesn't feel good to me anymore. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've been doing personally has been nervous system regulation work. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm actively doing some of that every day. And then I'm re- Reevaluating both my my personal life and my professional life, and how I go about working, and I would say I've been talking about 
restorative leadership for maybe the past three months. Hmm. And it, when I tell people about it, their ears perk up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just, there's kind of, something there. <laughs> there's something there. I'm just in the, the newness of it or the infancy of it. So I, I'm trying to just follow, follow the guidance as it comes. Um, but ultimately the desired outcome is for leaders to be well-rested, well-paid and deeply appreciated for the work that they do. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think, you know, it's, it, it cuts across so many axes. I know, um, like we'll talk about kind of the well-being portion, but I think, you know, it's useful to highlight just the pragmatic portion too at the beginning here, which is I had somebody ask me a really hard question. Uh, they, and this is, this is like a brutal question to get, but they asked me like, so how much of the work that you did at Altspace actually ended up mattering, mm. right? Like <laughs> how, how much of it actually led to value for the company? And, uh, you know, a hard question to ask, right? Answer, but I was like, I don't know, maybe half, right? Because, uh, you know, some of the projects don't end up panning out or whatever. And she was like, yeah, you know that ratio? That's the first thing to drop when you start overworking. <laughs> <laughs> and I've reflected on that a lot since then, where it's like the more stressed I am and the more I'm pushing myself to the late nights, the less I'm optimally doing the real work that needs to be done, you know? Yeah, yeah. You you bring up a good point because when... So when I think about the the restorative piece, most of the time, most companies are focused on the productivity and the progress, mm-hmm. but they aren't necessarily focused on the rest and recovery. Mm-hmm. And so I've, the Olympics is perfect. I've been talking about that a lot. It's like, if you think about Olympic athletes, they're not competing at their highest levels all the time. They have rest and recovery built into their schedules and built into their systems. Mm. And so what makes you think that as a leader, that's how you're going to be able to grow your business and do it sustainably or do it in a way that's enjoyable where you aren't sacrificing your your physical or your mental health, you aren't sacrificing your relationships, um, you aren't sacrificing your, your pleasure and your joy. Mm-hmm. And it, it just doesn't happen. So it almost feels like there's a, a recalibration that's happening right now where people are getting this opportunity to be uh, more introspective, to figure out, is this what I want? Is this how I want to spend my time and my energy and my effort? Or is there something else that I want to do? And if so, like either how do I do it or how do I put some kind of transition plan in place so I can move into uh, more of the things that that light me up. Yeah, that makes sense. If somebody's kind of reflecting on that, um, you know, how to bring more rest and recovery, is there, yeah, I'm guessing your answer isn't just like go to Bermuda you know, <laughs> once a year or something. Like, I, like what, yeah, what aspects do you recommend that people kind of reflect upon first? Yeah, I would say, I would say the nervous system education work has been a game changer for me because most of the Mm -hmm. time when we think about rest and recovery, it's usually massage, go exercise, eat good food, rest, sleep, all those things you know you need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we do them and sometimes we still don't feel, (laughs) we we still don't feel rested or uh, we don't feel like we're working optimally. And what I'm finding is that when we go a little deeper down into that 
that cellular physiological level and really began understanding the nervous system and understanding, well, why are we agitated? Why is our why are our bodies stuck in in fight, flight, freeze? Like when you see animals and they they have a moment of of fear or they run um, or they get ready to fight. Afterwards, sometimes they'll shake off and you just see yeah. them you see them relax and their system comes back down. Uh, for most of us, our system goes up, but we don't always come back down. So we just stay up and then we plateau at that up and that just becomes our normal way of living. Um, and so what I'm finding now is that when I help people have some awareness of, of that activation and the agitation, mm-hmm. They're like, oh, right. I actually don't know what rest looks like because I've never rested. I found myself there, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I, you know, I, I, it was like weird for me because it was, I'm from Hawaii. And so the, like, I always, but I always didn't quite care about the things that I felt like a lot of people around me cared about, which was like rest and relaxation. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so I, f- I found like a very early rebelliousness against any sort <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> relaxing or whatever. So it's been a journey for me to learn it here over the last couple of years. It is. It is. And I think especially here in, in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area in general, um, everybody, people are excited about the work that they're doing. And it, it, it feels good. Like there's this creative surge and people want to do really cool things. Um, but it also comes, it comes at a cost if we don't, if we don't pay attention. Yeah. And I think right now we're starting to see the cost and it's, (laughs) I'm not sure what's going to happen with the pandemic, but, um, I think we have a little a little ways to go before people really say, oh, maybe I should check this out and reevaluate this because this isn't really taking me down the road that I want to go down. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found interesting was the you bring up the animals sort of shaking uh, afterwards. And uh, I don't know if you've done this, but I, I found some people have these kind of shaking practices that you can do. Uh where you kind of like exhaust your lower body and then just kind of like let it shake. And I found that very, very like relaxing and therapeutic for dealing with stress and anxiety. So uh, it feels, feels like there's a lot to explore here. I think, I think there is, there's definitely been some work um, that has been underway for, for a little while. Uh, but I think now people are opening up to it a lot more. So uh, some resources that I use. One woman um, who's been my mentor, her name is Irene Lyon. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work with her. Awesome. Uh, she talks a lot about Peter Levine. There's another guy um, called Resma uh, Minicum. He wrote My Grandmother's Hands, and he talks a little bit about uh, the the racialized body and the nervous system. So hmm. uh, people of color often find he brings some very interesting perspective to the table. Interesting. How, uh, yeah. Is there any way to give us a little bit of idea of kind of, um, because I, I admit, I, I don't really know what that would look like or mean. Is there any kind of examples there? that? Yeah. So in, in his book, he breaks it down into three categories. So you have um, the black body, the white body, and the police body. <laughs> and all of those have very different experiences. And so for... Uh, 
and I'm <laughs> I'm speaking very high level. So sure. Yeah. Uh, so for someone in a black body, uh, oftentimes when they see the cops, they either go into freeze and shut down, or they go into to activation and fight. And so mm-hmm. now they're living in that constant state of of shutdown or or fight, and it ends up uh, worsening the other stressors that are already happening. Interesting. Uh, happening in in their lives and so it's it's his way of saying oh what the black body needs is different than what the white body needs which is different than what the the police body needs and it has some really really interesting points uh and i'm i'm excited to see his work continue to expand and to see what happens around um social justice uh and and the nervous system work that he's doing with people. That's interesting. Yeah, it's um, it makes sense that uh, with very different kind of reactions to um, to police or to yeah, <laughs> maybe traditionally racist authority. <laughs> but, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. And it's uh, uh, yeah, that would make sense. It's it's always interesting to be coming into this, you know, especially kind of growing up in Hawaii where all the sort of racial categories were a little different. Yeah, uh, to get exposed to this stuff, but it makes sense. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I I wonder about with this um, restorative leadership stuff is that it feels like there's things to both generate um, more kind of relaxation or sort of like, you know, uh, like actively kind of, uh, I don't know, get yourself back to a relaxed state. Mm-hmm. And then there's a way of just kind of like not getting uh, into the sort of stressed state in the first place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, I wonder if we could talk about that sort of second one for just a moment where it feels like there's different ways of kind of like setting up um, how you work and how you go about your work uh, that might, you know, <laughs> lessen the amount of stress that we're putting on ourselves. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I think about it almost like preventative medicine versus reactive medicine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Totally. And it... it in some ways, it requires more effort for people because there's the breaking of old patterns and then identifying, okay, what do I want this new way of operating to look like? And then there's the practice of it. So it, it feels like a lot of work initially because you're, you're rewiring a lot of old programming. Um, but I think if we can get people to think about it at the beginning. So some of the things that I'm seeing now is, is that I'm, I'm having more conversations with high school students or college students who are interested in entrepreneurship. And so when I talk to them, I think this is fantastic. <laughs> this is exactly like part of the population that we need to be talking to. I also think it needs to go into our primary education and kindergarten, but that's a whole nother conversation. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But well, because, yeah, I mean, a lot of these skills just aren't being taught, right? Like, you know, it's it's rare that, like, everybody has to be their own boss in a lot of different cases now, right? Yeah. And it's uh, a lot of novel situations for self-management and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But to your, to your point about us, how do we do it in the first place? Like, I think of it, I think of it like going to the gym. Mm. You start... 
you start light. Don't go in on your first day trying to squat 300 pounds. It's just a recipe for disaster, especially if you don't have any form, you've never been to the gym before, or it's been a long time since you've been to the gym. So this is a perfect example. When I, uh, I finally have started getting back into a regular workout routine. And uh, last year when I did it, I thought, oh, I'm just going to pick up where I left off. No, that was not, that was not the case. <laughs> I didn't have the same strength, and I also didn't have the same um, aerobic endurance, so I couldn't do it. So yeah, this yeah. time, I, I started, and the very first day that I went back to the gym, I went and I got on the elliptical for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? That's all I got for today. And I left. And then I went back, and I did five five minutes the next day and I went back and I did 10 minutes the next day. And so what I found is that in doing it incrementally, not only is it more enjoyable, but it it also lasts longer because now I'm not overriding my system. I'm not overriding my body. I'm actually listening to to my nervous system say, okay, this is what you can do today. And that's perfectly mm. okay. That makes sense. Interesting. So are you sort of expressing that this is a uh... Uh, kind of paying attention to how that is in relation to your work is important? It is. It is. It can be in relationship to your work. It can be in relationship to communication. So think about Mm -hmm. our time together. Um, Mm -hmm. We we did it over the course of three or four months. Mm -hmm. And some things you implemented right away and you did consistently. And some things you might have implemented you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks or once a month or only yeah. one time uh, after our entire time of working together. All of those are little muscles that you're you're refining and and strengthening. And so I when I think about communication or when I think about leadership or when I think about building a business, uh, I think about all of those things as being practices. Some days mm-hmm. they're going to be really good. Some days not so much, and both is okay. Yep, totally. Well, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> it is. I just, uh, you know, as you're talking about the different sort of things that we talked about, um, I thought it was so interesting because, you know, I went when I when I first approached Donnie, I was like, I want to communicate better. I want to be more eloquent. Uh, and the thing that I thought that we were going to work on was a lot of you know, uh, ums and ahs. And we did work a little bit on that and different, uh, tones of voices and all this kind of stuff. But I thought the thing that was so interesting was so much about your, uh, coaching was about content itself and sort of the perspective that you're bringing to the communication that you are doing. Right. Um, I loved that example of, I think there's a way that you talk, you talk about, uh, how do you make somebody's day easier when you're communicating to them, even if you're trying to like sell them something or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? <laughs> Most of the time, people are exhausted. <laughs> they don't, I don't want to say they don't want to listen, but their capacity to listen um, has lessened over the over the course of the past decade, but especially over the, the course of the past year, mm. um, because they just have so many other things going on. Yeah. And so it's really about how do you how do you speak or explain your concept in a way that makes it really easy for them to say yes. Mm. And when you can when you can simplify your message or you can position your message in 
in a way that this is for you. I'm sharing this information to help you. I'm sharing this information so that you can um, do something faster or better or easier. One, not only does it often switch the way you go about talking about the information that you wanted to share, but there's this element for the listener where they can just relax into the conversation and relax into listening into your communication because they now associate you with making their life easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's a great filter too, because I find myself, if I can't figure out how it's going to make their life easier, then I second guess the ask <laughs> a little better. You got to come back and figure out, well, maybe I need to ask for something slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a really, really great clarifier. Yes, it is. And I just want to contrast it with something like, you know, there's, if you're trying to sell somebody something or whatever, right, you can think about this, you know, or you could think about, we could go to uh, how to win friends and influence people and think about like, okay, well, how do I like give them something? So then they, or what is it like you get somebody to do something for you and then they feel like they like you or whatever. Like there's all these sorts of kind of like gray techniques that like salesmen and marketers have used them before and like, Maybe they're effective, but I don't know if they're more effective than just trying to figure out how to make somebody's day easier. And it certainly seems a lot nicer, you know. You know, I I like I like sales and marketing. I respect sales and marketing. I think they're really important. Um, but I also think there's a fine line between influence and manipulation. Yes. And so I'm not I'm not interested in manipulating yeah. <laughs> in manipulating yeah. people or using manipulative language. Let me let me mm -hmm. say that. And so what I often find for myself is if I can get to the nugget of truth, both for myself and for the other person, then mm -hmm. I would much rather communicate in that way than try and figure out, OK, how do I position this thing in a way that could make them consider what it is that I want to say and how's it going to be beneficial to them? And, you know, mm -hmm. then what am I going to be able to, to get out of that? Like that just takes too much mental energy for me and I don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have it. No time for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I, you know, the, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. And I think that the, um, one of the heuristics that I've thought of myself around this stuff, and I don't think it's always possible to do it this way, um, but I think in a lot of cases it is, which is, um, if I was frank with somebody about all the sort of, you know, uh, things I was thinking about when I, when I was communicating with them this, and I told them that afterwards, would they laugh or would they be mad at me? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And if, if I told them that I was trying to make their day easier, they'd probably laugh or they'd be happy. If I told them that I was trying to manipulate them, into, <laughs> you know, by, by setting them up. So they gave me something or, like they would not be happy about that. Right. So, yeah. It's felt like a bit of a clarifying filter for myself. Well, and if you think about it this way, everybody has an agenda. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that I always tell all of my clients. Assume everybody has an agenda and assume it's not yours. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And so if you can go into the conversation with that in mind, then it it's in a lot of ways it opens up the conversation because now you have to actively find where's the overlap in our thinking or where's the overlap in what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and that that then builds trust. It allows you to, to build rapport and connection. And it also allows you to have an honest conversation to say, oh, well, um, let's, let's take political differences. You know, mm -hmm. you have someone who 
is the Democrat and then you have someone with the Republican. It's like, all right, we we all want our families to be taken care of. How we go about doing that or what we prioritize might be a little different. Um, fine. So what what is what does taking care of your family mean? And the other person says, well, it means A, B, and C. And then the they ask the other person and the other person says, well, for me, it means C, D, and E. Great. The overlap that we have is C. So that's where the conversation begins, right? And A and B and D and E, they expand the conversation. And so now you you have a much bigger conversation before than you had initially, because now it's not about winning. It's about how do we how do we connect and then amplify. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. And I found that uh, there was a uh, somebody saw me some. Uh, <laughs> I won't name the company, but there was a big name company that did a bunch of research <laughs> on uh, how to uh, like de-radicalize people with conspiracy theories or whatever. Um, and they showed me their takeaways. And they, it felt like that was one of the exact ones. There was this sort of thing of, um, maybe it's slightly different, but it's it's connected, which is go with the grain of the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Like if they're talking about like, you know, well, the chemtrails are because it's a you know, government's trying to, you know, control the populist or whatever, right? You can be like, yeah, you know, it's interesting how they exert influence. Like, you know, we can see these ways through propaganda or what like you, you can you can you can resonate with the concern that they have and kind of dip into that with, you know, some some sort of semblance of a same conversation, but then try to lead it away after, right? Yeah. But you're never going to get there unless you try to find at least a tiny bit of that overlap, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how does that jive, you know, if we sort of talk about another place where we have tricky communication, which is like negotiation, for example, uh, how do you how do you sort of weave that inviting in frame or that finding the common ground frame in there? I, when it comes to negotiation, I love uh, going for the triple win. Hmm. What does that it, mean? Yeah. It means a win for you, a win for me and a win for the relationship. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, there's a theme in, <laughs> yes. in, in some of the things that I'm, I'm proposing, which means you actually have to look for the positives in the communication, mm. or you have to look for the connection points in the communication. So when it comes to negotiation, um, I think negotiations can be a lot of fun. But I, I think a lot of things get left on the table uh, when it comes to negotiation uh, because it, it's for many, it, the narrow becomes so focused. So one of the exercises that I have my clients do when it comes to negotiation is think about your good, better, best. Hmm. What's a, the good is what's an okay uh, win for you. The better is just that. And then the best is here's the ideal. Mm-hmm. And then Interesting. Yep. go into the conversation with the ideal, mm-hmm. 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 because now you have two other options in your back pocket that you can you can use as sandboxes for the negotiation. But if you don't have any idea of what good, better, best mean or look like for you, <laughs> then you're probably not going to come out of the negotiation uh, very happy around what happened. Interesting. Yeah, you want to have your kind of uh, anchor points to come back to, or things to to have yeah, best alternative to negotiated agreement or whatever. I mean, yeah. that's similar. Yeah. The other component of that, though, is what are your non-negotiables? Mm, yeah, that makes sense. 
and being clear about those because then you can communicate it of, hey, these are some of my non-negotiables and this is important to me or here's why this isn't important to me. And if they say, well, you know what? I just, I can't do that. Then that gives you the information you need to exit the conversation, come back to it later or, um, or just say thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and the being able to get those things out on the table. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I felt like in a, in a lot of your advice, it ended up. Um, oftentimes, it's like don't show all your cards, and maybe there's some truth to that. But I feel like you have described ways of showing cards in ways that feel like they're mutually beneficial. Um, and it feels like the more that you can make it this like collaborative exercise to solve the puzzle <laughs> of negotiation, it feels like the better. Does that seem right to you? Or it is, and and I'll say that most of the most of the people that I work with are usually are usually more on the collaborative side or more of the thoughtful side. So they're constantly thinking about okay, what's the impact on the other human being that mm-hmm. I'm interacting with. But oftentimes they find themselves in conversations with people who are um, more cutthroat. They're more narcissistic. Sure. Yeah. They're more aggressive. Fair, yeah. And I don't, I don't want my leaders going into conversations not feeling like they can't handle being in conversations with people who are um, who are more on the aggressive side, and it. I think there's actually a lot of learning that can come from those interactions because now you can say, huh, that person had no problem asking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I want a little bit of that. What about what, what about what they said or what about um, what they did could be beneficial to me? How could I, how could I extract a little bit of that and put it into my communication or put it into my leadership? Um, and they end up gaining more confidence, but they also end up becoming more assertive. Yeah, and their level of respect for themselves it goes up usually exponentially because they're they now have this um, compassionate confidence about them. Mm. Yeah. Where where they they just say, no, I, I deserve this too, or you know, I want this for yeah. myself too. And so in order for me to do that, I actually have to ask. Or in order for them to know that that's a boundary, then the words actually have to come out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And even in that one, I feel like that uh, there is a ton of strength in having um, uh, having thought through and, and, and built some confidence around your non-negotiables and boundaries, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if, is there a way that we can, you know, I, I know that I've only kind of learned about <laughs> how to set, you know, I've been learning about how to set better boundaries for myself over the last couple of years. And like, it, it's still something that's kind of new to me. Maybe it's uh, uh, something that others aren't intimately familiar with. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like to you or how you think about sort of finding those non-negotiables or setting and holding those boundaries? Yeah. Boundaries for me have been have been a practice as well. (laughs) And if you aren't used to setting them in the first place, it feels really uncomfortable because uh, for most people, it feels like, am I being rude? Am I being too harsh? Like, uh, am I, uh, should I, should I 
be a little bit more thoughtful about this? And the, the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to boundaries, there is boundary setting and then there's boundary enforcement. And I mm-hmm. see those as two very different, two very different skills. Um, and sometimes with the boundary setting piece, it's really thinking about what, what are you willing to do? Or what are you willing to say yes mm-hmm. to? What are you willing to take responsibility for? Um, what are you willing to consider? And then on the no side, it's what aren't you willing to do? What aren't you willing to take responsibility for? Um, and what won't you consider? And once you have a list of those things, then you can go into the, the conversation with, hey, these things I'm willing to do, or this I'm willing to take responsibility for, this piece I won't take responsibility for, um, or I'm not willing to do. And if you want to explain why, you can, but you don't necessarily have to. Yes. That point was a very important one for me to realize. That they say like no is a complete sentence. Yeah. <laughs> and, and man, that's hard. I don't know. It's just maybe the culture I'm from or whatever, but it always feels like I need to be able to give an explanation for why I'm saying no or yes or whatever. And yeah. And even when I still do, it feels like there's a ton of power in knowing that you don't have to. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, when, it, when it comes to boundaries for you, which... Which has been more difficult, setting, establishing them and setting them or the enforcement? Hmm. You know, that's different in different relationships, but um, I feel like the first one is probably harder. Like I, um, once I feel something is in like the, uh, <laughs> once I feel like I'm kind of uh, established that I'm in the right on something or that like there's a clear moral case or something like that, then it's not too hard for me to act. But I think at least convincing myself that it's okay that I set this boundary or that I, cause sometimes it's in places where they're not traditionally found, right? Like, yeah. you know, what does it look like to set one in a work context or something like that? Right. You know, yeah. that's um, there's a lot of existing narratives on what's supposed to be okay to do and not do in those contexts. And you see it cascade. We were just, um, recently talking about the issues with Slack where you can't block people on Slack because they set it up to be these corporate tools where they assumed that you would kick somebody out with HR or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that sort of like inability to technologically set a boundary was baked in there because of these assumptions about the workplace. And so what does that mean? You know, in you're sort of encountering a similar situation personally. So um, I think that once I'm able to sort of formulate that it's okay for me to set one and that I have, then I think it's easier uh, for me to hold it. But yeah, it's different in different relationships. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about for you? <laughs> it, it has been, I'd say it's been easier for me to do in professional relationships than mm-hmm. my personal relationships. Uh, I'm getting a lot better at doing it in my personal relationships. And I would say the enforcement piece has been the muscle that I've <laughs> I've been working on strengthening. The establishment makes sense. has been fairly easy. Like, oh yeah, that doesn't feel good anymore. Okay, you said it doesn't feel good. Here you go. Here's an mm-hmm. opportunity to practice enforcing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. And then it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's difficult in the first place, and then it's actually difficult to do it compassionately. But if we can get there, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Well, and it it also 
can be a game changer for people, meaning setting boundaries in some ways can change your life. So if you have been accustomed to um, interacting in a particular relationship in in a way, in a certain way, and then you now start establishing these boundaries and then enforcing them, that could cut the relationship off because now you're saying, no, I'm not allowing you to speak to me in this way, or no, I'm not allowing you to do this thing. And if you're going to continue doing this thing, then I can't be around you. And there's there's sadness that happens with that. And there's grief mm-hmm. and disappointment that happens with that. And people have to, uh, people have to, navigate that piece just as much as the communication piece. Yeah. And this feels like a very timely thing for, I was just reading a, there was an article that came out. Um, maybe Nick, you can find it for us. It was, <laughs> I, I listened to my stuff on autumn, but it was about uh, kind of um, uh, millennial or Gen Z kids and their parents kind of having um, estrangement issues and stuff like that. And there being like a different way that, um, these generations want to have interactions with their parents where they're able to do things like set boundaries, you know, once they're adults, but even if they're younger, you know, and they want to be able to, um, you know, there's sort of less obligation frames and more like, Hey, we're two people frames. And that just being like causing some interesting uh, clashes and challenges, especially around that set of boundary setting. So it feels like a very timely and important uh, skill or conversation to have. I'm I'm going to be really interested to see what happens with that because I I was I saw it in the airport a few weeks ago where this girl was talking to her mom and maybe she was maybe she was 16 or 17 and she said to her mom she's like I don't have to be a doormat for people mm-hmm. and it was interesting it was just wow. Like the thought of me saying that to my mom yeah. when I was 16 or 17, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might not be here. <laughs> yeah, she's. <laughs> but it, I mean, there's something, there was something really beautiful about the interaction where I was secretly cheering the little girl on, like, good for you. And yeah. that takes a lot of courage to, to be willing to do that when your parents often play a big role in your life during that time um, because it can come with consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can. And that's where, you know, and, and sometimes there's ways of kind of uh, uh, rationalizing, you know, <laughs> this is a boundary that I'm setting, but it's really just me being mean or whatever. But <laughs> in most cases it's not. Yeah. And, uh, it, but you know, it feels like it does come with a, a fair amount of courage, right? It requires that. It does. Courage is, Courage is a wonderful thing that is emerging more and more right now. Um, and I think the communication piece is courageous. The leadership piece is courageous. I think kids telling their parents, hey, I want you to see me as a, a human being mm-hmm. is courageous. And parents actually being willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because parents are having to do a lot of their own deprogramming and reprogramming. Right. And that takes courage as well. Like, okay, well, if I don't do the the command and control parenting, then how do I parent? Right. And that's a whole new place for a lot of people that they're yeah. navigating right now. 
and it's hard because, you know, <laughs> parenting is important. And, you know, I, like, I think back on my childhood a little bit and I'm glad that, uh, you know, I'm glad I was pushed hard to do certain things. And, you know, uh, and at the same time, you know, I, you know, it's funny because, you know, that I, I would have complained a lot as a kid and I'm glad that I ended up, you know, getting pushed to do some stuff. And then at the same time, you're like, yeah, man, I wish there were some times where I was able to talk more, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, more frankly or more with more kind of negotiated nuance or whatever. I, I found my, my relationship with my parents changed maybe, I'd say probably maybe three years ago. Interesting. And I think part of it, I just see, I see Nick's comment about uh, the psychologist, or Joshua Coleman, who wrote The Rules of Entanglement or Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. There was a period of time where I, I felt like I divorced myself from my family hmm. because I just needed to figure out like what what is uh, my perspective about life or what is my perspective about interactions or what's my what does my voice sound like that's not tied to shame or guilt or obligation. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole lot of guilt because I <laughs> felt like, oh, I should be interacting with my parents mm. uh, more, but I'm not. I should be spending more time with my family, uh, but I'm not. And I realized I needed that period of time for myself because I just needed to be able to give back to myself. Mm -hmm. And now in my interactions with my family, I love spending time with them, but I'm also a lot more vocal than I used to be of, oh, no, that that actually doesn't sit well with me or mm -hmm. um, here's my perspective on that. So my dad and I will get in, in playful debates with one another. Whereas before I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it, not because he wouldn't have welcomed it. Um, but part of it was because I didn't actually know how I, I really felt about the issue. Uh, and so it just felt like the argument wouldn't have really gone anywhere. Interesting. Whereas now I'm like, no, if you want to go in, let's go in. And <laughs> if there's disagreement, even better, because now I'm going to get to practice listening to you with compassion. I'm going <laughs> to get to practice inviting you into the conversation or have you invite me into the conversation or have me stay in the conversation when really what I want to do is like scream and, <laughs> and jump out of this conversation. Totally. And they're at the end of those interactions. I feel like there is more appreciation and love and compassion because we just had this really candid conversation with one another. And it wasn't actually about convincing or trying to win the other hmm. person to the other side. It was just, here's my voice. Here's my perspective. Here's how I think about things. And thank you for listening. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really, uh, I, I'm very happy that, that you've gotten to that better state. And it also, it's an interesting sort of conversational style. Uh, which I haven't thought a lot about, which is, yeah, you're not trying to necessarily convince the other person. You're just trying to let both people share their view on the thing. Is that what you're sort of referring to? Yeah, it, it is. The yeah. The analogy that I use is think about, think about communication as going to a buffet mm -hmm. where there's a whole lot of options for people and what someone, <laughs> what uh, someone is going to love might not be what you love and vice versa. But when you go to a buffet, you're not swiping other people's dishes off the table because you don't like their food. You're just letting them eat their food. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I feel like when we get into a conversation where there's disagreement, 
so much of it is about knocking the other person's plate off the table rather than just saying, oh, that that's your that's your meal. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. I don't need to do anything with it. You want to enjoy your meal. I want to enjoy my meal. Um, I, we don't have to let our food cross-pollinate. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got your little plate. I've got my plate. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. And then you go on about your day. Interesting. And you can uh, you can tell them that your food is pretty delicious. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and maybe they'd be keen on it next time. But yeah. exactly. but you can do there's an art to doing that without saying that they're eating something gross. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I um you know, I think the thing that's interesting to me about both um the sort of family relationships that we were talking about um and um I'll, I'll follow up here with a little bit on kind of one's own working relationship with oneself, but it feels like with that sort of family relationship, there is this kind of uh, phase change that can happen, right? Where it kind of goes from one style of, of interaction uh, to another. And I like the fact that, that the one that you brought up there, um, maybe there's a more poetic way of saying this, but it was, uh, it felt like you're like, nope, don't want to be a doormat on this anymore or whatever. Or like I want to have more of a voice in these interactions or whatever. And that's leading to what sounds like just an even just like better conversational state, right? Where it feels like yeah. you're able to have those kind of uh, banter or whatever where you couldn't before. Yeah. Um, and well, that these transitions can be kind of difficult to, <laughs> or not super easy, <laughs> but they can lead to these higher plateaus, right? Yes. I, I'm finding more and more um, for myself personally and within my clients I'm actually not interested in you winning the conversation. Hmm. I'm just interested in you being willing to give yourself the space to have the conversation. Interesting. So some some people will come up to me and they'll say, "Oh, Donnie, I tried, I tried the conversation that we we role played, or I tried the tool that you gave me, um, and here's what worked." And I said, "Great." And then they'll say, "But." You know, either the conversation didn't really go anywhere or the person still said no or they left. And I said, fantastic. That wasn't the point of me giving you the exercise. (laughs) Prior to this moment, you hadn't said it and you weren't willing to have that conversation. And so now you did. Can you have that conversation again? Yeah, it was actually a lot easier than I thought. Perfect. (laughs) Then you won. (laughs) Nice. I like it. Uh, I like the reframing the winning too. It's it it helps a lot. Uh, yeah. Every time I go to Vegas, I reframe it as like I'm not gambling, so I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that you're entering the conversation at all because yeah. it is like you know even you know, like I don't know maybe, maybe the conversation didn't go the way that you did, but the next one might you know. But, uh, yeah. If if people base their success only on winning, mm-hmm. they're going to be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is the tricky thing across a bunch of things in life, but you have to, uh, did you kind of act in the way that you want to act in the future? Not did it go the way that you wanted, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, to move and we'll maybe continue to touch on some communication, communication stuff as we chat today, but I wanted to kind of shift a little bit back towards, um, you know, we're talking about this kind of like phase change between one state and another. And I feel like there's this kind of phase state or phase change on the, the sort of state of how uh, we do this kind of restorative leadership stuff where it feels like, like I used to work much more in this mode where it's just like, how jacked up can I make myself? How much caffeine can I drink? How much, you know, intensity can I bring to this thing? 
uh, and it felt like I got a lot done, you know, and I look back, right. It wasn't all, all the time the ideal work. Um, but then if you're trying to shift to this more like compassionate, like how do I, rather than how do I make myself do something? How do I like support myself in doing something? Uh, it feels like you have to maybe take a little bit of a productivity gap in between or whatever. Right. Or, or I, like, I don't know. How do you think about making kind of like transitions like that? Yes. It's, it is a very, very awkward transition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because usually what happens is people have gotten so accustomed to working in a particular way. So this goes back to their system being turned on. Right. Mm. And so now usually what happens is there is this extended period of time where you aren't really productive. You don't want to do anything. You're sleeping a lot. You're vegging out a lot. And those are all part of the transition. But hmm. because they aren't associated with doing anything and accomplishing anything, people don't see them as productive. So Interesting. I, I think part of what I'm finding as, as this work emerges is redefining what productivity actually means. And let's just, hmm. let's just keep it in the context of Olympic athletes. Okay. They, they are productive when they're resting and they're recovering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because their body, their cells, they're rebuilding, they're, they're replenishing, they're taking time to, to come down. And all of that is important in order for them to, um, to work optimally. And so the, I need to find a visual for this, but I think of it more as like rolling hills. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For productivity versus uh, Mount Everest, and then like you come down and it's this jagged, <laughs> yeah, jagged steep curve coming back down, and then you plateau down at the bottom, and then you spike back up uh, because that isn't sustainable for a lot of people. Even though mm -hmm. it might feel good, because you're like, yeah, I accomplished a lot, and I overcame this, and I meet the deadline, and all of these things. And that's great. They're important. Um, but there has there has to be some level of thought that goes to, but if I were to do this, could I do this over and over again? Could I do mm -hmm. this repeatedly? Could I do this consistently? And most of the time people can't because their body is like, hello, can you can you listen? I'm hurting. I'm limping across the finish line. Uh <laughs> I'm dealing yeah. with the diagnosis. I have adrenal fatigue. Um, yeah. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating. I'm depressed. Uh, I'm incredibly anxious. Yeah, totally. And it's it's in some ways almost redefining what optimal success means and looks like. And that's yeah. what I'm that's what I'm really interested uh, in seeing happen over over the course of wherever restorative leadership takes me. <laughs> That's awesome. I know there's a, uh, there's a book I'm about halfway through on this that uh, it, it seems pretty good. It's covering some ground that I've seen before, but uh, it seems like a very good like uh, collection of, it's called Effortless. I forget the author. Maybe Nick can help us look this up. Um, but one of the tips that he had in there, which I liked was uh, don't like, don't do more in one day than you can recover from in that day. Yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> just some of those things where it's like, yeah, I don't know. And sometimes it's fun to pull the all-nighters or whatever, like, you know, you're cranking away on something. But I, I feel like the more that I, like, 
you can feel productive and then you look back on it six months later and you're like, yeah, that looks like the author is Greg McCohen. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, there, yeah. I haven't, I haven't pulled an all nighter in a really long time. Yeah. The only time I stayed up for a long period of time was for, <laughs> for a party. And, <laughs> hey. and even that now hurts. Like, so yeah. if I say, if I try and stay up until three or 4 a.m., Mm-hmm. I feel it for the next two or three days. Yep. Yes. My body just doesn't, it doesn't want to operate in that way anymore. And I have to be okay with that. (laughs) Totally. Well, it's also interesting, you know, the the thing that I've reflected on on this little bit of stuff too, is that uh, I have to be honest with myself on what is actually relaxing, right? Yes. So, yeah. Like I know for like the distinction, because it'd be like, okay, I'll just go play some video games for a little bit. And it's like, yeah, there's a certain amount of like kind of, you know, appeal and and, and sort of uh, just not worrying about other things for a moment. But it's not really relaxing. <laughs> like, my adrenaline is spiking. I'm trying to, you know, like dash around these levels or whatever. And so <laughs> I, I have to find, okay, well, is it me just going out outside in the sunlight? Is it juggling where I'm not looking at a screen? Is it, you know, what is it, right? Um but getting more honest on that seems tricky but useful. It is. I and I also think people have to people have to figure out what what rest and recovery and relaxation means and looks like for them. Because mm-hmm. for me, I love going down to the water or being on the beach or being outside um, and just sitting in silence. But I know that's not everybody's jam. They don't want mm-hmm. to. Do, they don't want to do that. And sometimes they might actually feel more anxious doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where learning how to listen to your nervous system and tune into it is really important because uh, if someone is in shutdown, maybe they need to go out and go for a run or they need to go out and go to the gym. And that's going to help them. Um, that's going to activate their system, but it's also going to help them relax and get back into their flow. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what about your, you know, and I'm happy to talk about myself a little bit, but I'm curious for you, what like sort of things have you built into your life to help you do more of this uh, restoration? It is definitely a work in progress, I hear you. <laughs> yep. um, but I am, I am on this uh, kick right now where I'm really looking through the lens of, uh, does this bring me peace? Hmm. Does it make me feel well rested? Uh, does it pay me well without mm-hmm. me having to overextend or overexert myself? And do I feel deeply appreciated? Mm. And what I'm finding for myself is I'm spending a lot more time outside. Mm-hmm. I'm going for walks. Uh, I usually take anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours every morning just spending time with myself. So I might listen to a podcast. Uh, I might listen to music. I might listen to some YouTube videos. Uh, I might go outside. And so those 30 minutes to two hours are like sacred to me. Like if I don't do it, my day feels off. And so I'm really looking at how do I reschedule and reorient my day Um, that allows me to more consistently be in flow, but also um, that allows me to take a break during the day. So some days I might just take a nap in the middle of the day or go and lie down in the grass at the park while I take my dogs out for a walk. 
And those are little restorative practices. Like it doesn't have to be some fancy vacation. Like it does, you don't have to go and get a massage, even though those things are great. Um, it can literally just be something where you get from in front of your computer or yeah. you turn your phone off um, or you go in color. Like I, yeah. I, I bought some play. colored pencils. Yeah, play. Yeah. I, I started doing leadership recess with people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it is it is the most fun experience that I have with my leaders because they come and hang out with me for sixty minutes, and then we might listen to some music. We'll do a little bit of coaching. I'll have them draw. Um, sometimes I'll have them move, depending on it. We might do some somatic or nervous system work. And it, it just right, it just depends on what they want or need in that moment. And when they leave, there's this feeling of ease and, and restoration. Like, okay, I'm ready to go and do my thing now. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I'm <laughs> my, my, uh, most, uh, uh, shameless, but kind of hilarious, uh, playful things that I've done recently is like, if I'll be at a beach, I'll just build a sandcastle. Awesome. <laughs> and I don't care that I'm the bearded, you know, dude with some gray in my beard, building a sandcastle by myself on the beach. <laughs> That's fine. You know, and it, maybe, maybe it does take some courage to play sometime. You know, I, it's, you joke about it, but it, it's true. Like I'm, I'm watching as I'm talking about it and watching people, like engage with it. A lot of people have forgotten how to play mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because so much of the focus has been on productivity. It hasn't been on pleasure. Yeah, totally. And and there's the uh, the aimless quality of it that, that yeah. feels very important, right? Where there's no particular goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, another aspect of it coming, coming back to the previous part of the conversation is that sometimes it requires setting like, you know, boundaries in order to do some of this stuff, right? Like, uh, no, I know that this thing is important, but I'm not going to be worrying about this for an hour mm-hmm. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I know I, you know, I'd love to support, uh, or like, you know, be with my partner, you know, many times throughout the day, but I need to take this time for myself to, you know, to recover and be the person that I want to be, you know? It can be tricky, but it's valuable. Yeah. The beauties of, of boundaries and communication and leading <laughs> yourself. Totally. Um, well, I, you know, there's a few other things that I'd love to talk. Maybe um, I'm curious uh, if you can talk a little bit about, there's a few different ways that we find ourselves kind of in leadership, you know, especially kind of in organizations or, you know, stuff like that. And I, I, I remember you talking about kind of this up, down and kind of lateral kind of leadership. Um, and I'm curious if there's ways like, you know, maybe if you can talk to us a little bit about the kind of the ways that you think about those things. And then, you know, maybe if there's any, uh, this might be early on, but if there's any kind of reflections you have on restorative leadership in context of those. Yeah, so I think the first piece is there's leadership by title, mm-hmm. and then there's leadership by influence and wisdom. Mm. And I often find that there are more leaders who have influence and wisdom than there are leaders with titles. Interesting, yeah. I think I see it more so when I talk to um when I talk to, to kids in high school or young adults who are either still in college or just out of college. Hmm. Because for me, 
they have a lot of wisdom hmm. that isn't necessarily tied to knowledge. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when I, when I, for instance, uh, yesterday I was hanging out with uh, a mentor of mine and she introduced me to someone in her community who had a 20 month year old. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there and watching watching him play around and he's just following in him, following himself and going and exploring. And then uh, at some point he just stops and settles. And it's like he, he knew that he needed to self do a little bit of self soothing because he was getting agitated. Interesting. I'm like this 20 year old can self soothe, but some 50 year olds don't know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So for me, he was a leader because he has this innate wisdom of like, oh, yeah, I have these natural ways of tending to myself that allow me to bring myself down. And I, that's part of the reason why I love talking to kids and young adults, because I learned so much from them or I remember so much from them when I engage with them Interesting. that are really about helping me tend to my own personal well-being as a human. <laughs> yeah. So you have you have those two different aspects of leadership. When it comes to up, down, and lateral, uh, how you go about talking to someone who is uh, a senior executive inside of your organization could be different than someone that you than some then how you would talk to someone who is either a direct report uh, or a peer. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important to be able to distinguish um, the needs of each of those audiences. Uh, mm -hmm. Because for the senior leader, most of the time, they just want to know high level. Tell me mm -hmm. what it is you want me to do and why this is important or how it's tied to the bottom line so I can go and tend to the other 50 things that I need to do for these other initiatives. Mm -hmm. For the peer, you can't necessarily tell them you want them to do something because they don't report directly to you. Mm -hmm. So it's, all right, how do you, how do we work together? How do we negotiate and find that triple win? What's going to be good for you? What's going to be good for me? And what's going to be good for our relationship? So we can continue working well together over, uh, over the course of our working relationship. And mm -hmm. then for those who are underneath you, how do you inspire them to take ownership uh, for the things that you want them to do rather than micromanaging them? And mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you invest in their development? And how do you help them see that you're invested in their development? So rather than telling them, hey, you need to do A, B, and C, maybe it's inviting them into the conversation and asking them more questions. Mm -hmm. Here's where we need to go. How do you see us getting there? Or what would you do to get us there? And maybe they have some ideas or maybe they don't. But then it becomes, uh, it becomes a matter of working together to figure out a solution and letting them play an equal part in finding the solution rather than you just dictating. And sometimes as a leader, you do need to dictate because <laughs> you have a deadline or mm -hmm. you have more context or whatever. Um, but it's really about finding finding that leadership flexibility and that communication flexibility, depending on who you're in relationship with or who you're in communication with at the time. 
That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like one of the themes that I, I've seen throughout your 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 work is, and it's, it's one of these where you can hear it once, you can hear it twice, but man, every time I hear it, I feel like it is uh, beneficial because <laughs> I have to keep reflecting on it, which is kind of look at it from the other person's perspective, right? <laughs> or consider that um, no matter what sort of relationship it is. Uh, it just feels like you cannot do that enough while communicating. Yeah. So part of... Uh when I first started working with Eloquence and going through the certification process, Fanta made me practice, or she didn't make me, she invited me to practice <laughs> um, doing, doing the tools that I, uh, I asked my clients to do. And when I got into it, I was like, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. But then that, the actual doing of it is really difficult. Some are easier. Some exercises and practices are easier than others. Um, but to be able to do them consistently, it takes some some work, and some of them are just uncomfortable. And I remember the first one that was really uncomfortable was around some of the listening tools. Mm-hmm. And she said, "I want you to pay attention to where you say no to people, how you say no to people." And I also want you to actively find merit in their point of view. <laughs> and you, you can't do anything else other than those three things. So what I found is that I usually say no to the people who are closest to me. Hmm. How I go about saying no is uh, usually some version of, yeah, I'll do it, but I'll do it at this point in time. Mm, so it's more about doing it on my terms rather than doing it on theirs. And finding merit uh, has been one of the, the best skills that I've learned, but also one of the most uncomfortable. Interesting. Especially when there's disagreement. Um, so for instance, one of, one of the things that my partner and I uh, got into an argument about has been around uh, me building my business uh, and not having enough time to spend uh, outside of work. Sure, yeah. And so one day he said, you're never around. Mm. Mm. And I had to say, you're absolutely right. I'm not. And just Mm. sit in it. (laughs) (laughs) And just sit in it. It's like, oh, okay. So if he's right, then I have to acknowledge that my actions are having an impact on this human being that I care about. Yep. And I think that piece, that piece is a game changer for a lot of people, um, especially when you think about rerouting where <laughs> we're going in the future. Yeah. Because we do have to take accountability and some responsibility for our actions or for the words that we use. Um, you're like, Oh yeah, I'm putting pain out in the world just like other people are putting pain out in the world. Yeah, I'm not so great. <laughs> I have yeah. a I have a mentor of mine who says, uh, "Have you looked at your flossom today? Your flaws and your awesome. <laughs> your flossom. That's great." I'm like, uh, I try to keep my flossom in the closet, uh, but I know I need to to bring it out and just acknowledge that yeah, it's there. There are people yes. who think I'm a jerk, just like there are people that I think are jerks. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, the, one of the things that you're saying there, I've, I've 
reflect a little bit on, which is the, um, it is so hard. It's easy to dismiss somebody's point, right? Yeah. yeah. Be like, yeah, no, whatever. Like I'm right. Yeah. The thing that's harder is to be like, okay, you're right on like a lot of this. And I still disagree and think we need to do this other thing or this other thing is more important, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's harder because it's showing, you know, it's vulnerability to your position or whatever, but it feels like it's important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing. Because I know, we know, one of the things that's tricky is, uh, you know, we have some lines to draw, but um, I I appreciate you sharing sort of uh, some personal examples because uh, they're, they're sometimes sensitive ones to share, hard ones to share, but I feel like it's uh, important <laughs> to share because these are the things that we struggle with on a daily basis. You know, I think the the pandemic has, at least for me, mm-hmm. um, has just given me an opportunity to be more human. <laughs> yeah, And in some ways, it's made things a lot easier to say, uh, hey, these parts of my life are working well. These parts of my life are still a work in progress. Uh, mm-hmm. These parts of my life are crap, <laughs> and, yep. and it because everybody has it and they're going through it. So to try and pretend otherwise is just is not a good use of time and energy. Um, but I also recognize that there's a level of, of vulnerability uh, and courage that comes with that, and and some people uh, want to do it and some people don't want to, and that's both are perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has been a uh, very useful time for reflection, I tell you that. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, I was joking with somebody, I was like, yeah, it's funny, the, the one object of attention that you have on a regular basis during the pandemic is just yourself sitting in this quarantine room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the relationships and, and people around you, but uh, it's been a lot of uh, tricky solo time cooped up and all that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, there was one, I don't know how to bridge into this, but I just wanted to express it because it's been a very important thing for me, which is, um, you know, people who are listeners to the podcast and and, and I feel like those who are in, um, you know, a sort of considerate, thoughtful, skeptical headspace uh, want to express uncertainty uh, or they, they want to, they sort of ride this line where it's like how, like I want to be intellectually honest and describe that I don't have all the answers. Uh, and I also want to uh, be strong in my statements, and I want to be able to rally people around a cause or a point. And it seems like there's this uh, challenge there between you know feeling intellectually honest and expressing certainty, and expressing c- certain like the power that comes with you know a certain certainty or, or a standpoint. Um, I have my one takeaway that I took from you that was very valuable on this, but I'm, I'm curious if you want to speak to this for just a second, then I'm happy to share. Yeah. I, when I think about, uh, a disruption and unlearning or relearning, uh, I think this is tied closely to this point of, of being able to say, I don't know without like saying, I don't know, because I don't think that's actually true. I think there are elements of things that we know and there are elements of things that we we are still learning or we're figuring out. Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the ways I I talk to leaders about this when they're talking about their ideas and wanting to share it uh, and then they get to a portion where they say, "Well, I don't really know how I feel about it." I was like, "Well, tell me tell me how you feel about the 
the topic overall. Tell me what parts of it you do know. Tell me what parts of it you do understand. Tell me mm-hmm. what parts of it um, interest you and why they interest you. All right. That's a whole lot of information you can share with people. Now, mm-hmm. let's let's distinguish that from the pieces that you're still figuring out or the pieces that you're curious about or the pieces mm-hmm. that um, are still unsure because they're that side of the equation is probably a lot less than the others, but sometimes they need help piecing these, these two areas of not knowing and still figuring out apart so that they can really get a better understanding of where they stand currently in the, around the topic that they're speaking to. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that it gives people a lot of freedom and space to really step into their leadership. Because for me, I think part of being in leadership is taking people into new territory that they haven't been in before, but also like you're a part of that journey. So you're you're taking your machete and you're hacking things through, but you don't know what you're going to find on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Like I, I think about that as, as compassionate communication and restorative leadership. I, it feels good. There are things that are really important to me. I, I want them to, to be valuable for people. But as I begin sharing this more and more with, uh, with my leaders, I don't know what's going to resonate with them or I don't, I don't know um, what new things we're going to uncover as we have those conversations because I've never had those conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Totally. Well, I, I appreciate uh, that because I, um, you know, the thing that stuck with me, I feel like you just did a great job of demonstrating, <laughs> which was that uh, the, the way that I remembered it was, yeah, you know, you, you present your, you know, present your ideas, present your frame, present the best kind of like ontology you can do. Because um, uh, it is kind of like a gift, right? If you're coaching or if you're sharing something or teaching something, if there's a way that you can think about it or frame it that, that works to help you think about it, you know, sharing that is valuable. Uh, but then in order to express the uncertainty is um, present specific things that you have questions about, right? Or curiosity about or uncertainty about. Um, and I think just as you sort of offered, you know, you don't know exactly how, um, you know, what those conversations are going to be or how that's going to go. Uh, I feel like that is such a perfect way of doing that. And, you know, it's one of these things here, right? Where like, I know these things are uh, incredibly valuable. I know this sort of uh, restorative leadership is something that that uh, that I know that I've become attracted to as I've sort of seen <laughs> the patterns of exhaustion and, and trying to sort out how to move forward. And I know this compassionate communication stuff is critical. And I don't know, you know, all the best ways for myself to practice it, right? You know, like a lot of this stuff is personal. And, uh, I don't know the best ways to share it yet, but, you know, hopefully we're, we're starting here with this. And um, I hope that uh, you have tremendous success in all, all of your, your future coaching and we find more ways to get the word out about all this stuff because it seems super, super valuable. So uh, I just, as we're kind of um, coming to a uh, wrap here, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, uh, so um, people can reach out to you, right? If they're interested in sort of coaching, uh, I think you're, you're, you're doing that, right? Yep. 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 
And um, you're working on some new stuff around restorative leadership. Is there anything you want to share on that yet? Or should we just keep our eyes eyes peeled? Yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit. So if you, yep. if you want to get connected with me, you can reach out to me via LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Donnell Hill and Donnie in, in quotation marks on LinkedIn. Or you can send me an email at Donnie, D-O-N-N-I-E, at thelifemaximizer.com. And one of the... The big projects that I'm working on right now is a new one-on-one six-month coaching program called the Well-Rested, Well-Paid Leader, <laughs> where I, I am diving in with leaders uh, around releasing old exhaustions and giving mm-hmm. them practices that they can do, um, doing some strategy work of, all right, here's where you are today. What does, what does a well-rested future look like? And how does your career, how does payment um, play into that? Because it is an important piece yeah. of the equation. And then really just spending some, some time with them over the course of six months doing these, what I'm calling micro transformations. And so the change isn't going to happen um, overnight. It's really going to take some time. Uh, and so that's part of the reason why I want them to go into this this longer term container with me because a lot's going to come to the surface as we we dive into uh, their work. But I, I also think that uh, some new discoveries are going to emerge for them as they think about how they want to lead and the legacy that they want to leave. Like I'm, I came across a book uh, that one of my friends told me about, and I think it's it's called either either the extreme act of self-care or the radical <laughs> act of self-care. Mm-hmm. And Cheryl Richardson is the author of it. And she talks about uh, this legacy of deprivation. Huh. And when I saw that and thought about this conversation and, and what I'm doing with um, restorative leadership, it's like, okay, what is on the other side of a legacy of exhaustion? Like that is not the <laughs> legacy I want to leave behind. That's not the legacy that I want um, my nephews to walk in into that's sure. not the legacy I want to see leaders uh, moving through the world in. That doesn't sound <laughs> exciting to me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's exciting uh, to see where this program goes because I really do think it is the the emergence of a very different way of of leading and having people build their businesses or their movements and just live their lives and lead their families. So uh, I I am appreciative for you allowing me to share that work with your community. Absolutely. Well, I uh, it makes me it makes me it brings a smile to my face because I'm happy that you're working on that, and it, it makes me happy because I can imagine uh, some people um, starting and leaving that program very different individuals. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, um, I uh, you know one of the things that we do here at Reroute um, that uh, Donnie had no small part in. Uh, <laughs> in helping us uh, realize was a valuable part of this uh, podcast was we do these, sometimes we jokingly call them activations, but they're, they're different sort of ways that you can uh, help make a difference uh, at the end of the episode. And I'd love, um, you often joke uh, about uh, to, our, to us clients about homework here. So maybe you can offer some homework to our listeners uh, if there's any ways that they can put into practice some of the stuff that we've talked about today. Yeah, let's start with the, the compassionate leadership piece. So the activation there would be to identify one person that they are 
they have a disagreement with. It can be in their personal life or it can be in their professional life. Um, identify what is the actual disagreement. So what are they arguing about? And then identify what is valid about that person's point of view. Mm. And just sit in it for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's hard. (laughs) On the restorative leadership side, uh, the activation could be um, what is uncomfortable about resting? Or what is uncomfortable about recovery and what would be different in your professional life or your personal life if you were to integrate 5% more rest and 5% more recovery? Hmm. I will have to ponder these. These seem like, <laughs> seem like very important uh, things to, to bring into our lives. Uh, producer Nick is agreeing as well. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Donnie. I really do want to appreciate uh, your generosity in sharing all these ideas with us today because, you know, you're a coach. You don't have to do this. You know, sometimes people pay you to, to hear these things. And uh, I just... Um, it is. It, it warms my heart that you're willing to share this uh, with our listeners, and uh, I hope to get these ideas uh, out more into the world. So thank you again. I really, really, really appreciate you and Nick having me on your show. And you know I love my conversations with you. So thank you for everything that you do. 100%, Donnie. Well, you have a uh, beautiful day, and I hope we talk again soon. All right, my friend. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.